If you'd like to turn back with me once again to Hebrews chapter number 2, we will be referring back to that text this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at it here in just a few moments. But I want to take a little bit different of approach this morning than those who are with us from week to week. And we've gone away just for this Sunday, away from our study in the book of Proverbs And I want to deal this morning in a different type of a form and a format. I want to answer a question, and a question that is not an original question by myself. It's a question that has been asked by many over the years. So there's no originality with me in this question. But the question is, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Man, it is a difficult question. Uh, It is a deep question. It is a question that is not easily answered apart from the Word of God. Our answer to that question only comes from God's Word. If we were to try to answer this question, humanly speaking, we could come up with a number of different suggestions. We could come up with a number of different philosophies. We could say, well, here's how it happened. Uh, We might even delve into the scientific realm and uh, try to find a scientific way to show how did he who is God, the Son of God, become man. We're going to speak often and a lot today about the incarnation of Christ. It is the very hope. It's the hope we just sang about. Every hymn this morning was chosen with the idea and the understanding about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. taking on human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. Uh, Some of you know we are a confessionally Reformed Baptist church, which means we hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith for our doctrinal statement, if you will. And there's a very interesting way that this question is answered by our confession writers. In chapter 8, paragraph 2, here is how the Son of God becoming man is defined or described. It says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now you'll notice that the confession writers did not use science to describe what this incarnation looked like, but they did make reference to the things that occurred And we are going to see that through our study this morning. We see being conceived by the Holy Spirit, which our mind, humanly speaking, just cannot grasp that. It has a hard time even coming to a conclusion as to how something like that can be. 
uh, talking about the power of the Most High overshadowing her. These are concepts, these are things that really our human, human mind continues to wonder, is that the answer to the question? Now, in our confession, there are a number of scripture references about that paragraph. John 1, which we're going to be looking at during our next service, Galatians 4.4, 4, Romans 8.3, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Matthew 1, Luke 1, Romans 9, 1 Timothy 2. All of those texts deal with, in some form or fashion, either a fulfilled prophecy or the actual incarnation of Christ. So, the conclusion this morning would be, in order to get the answer to the question, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man, then the question is best answered by the Scriptures. So this morning, I'm going to let the Scriptures, as it probably always should be, we're going to let the Scriptures answer the question. Now, some of you, especially with little children, are working with them and going through some sort of catechism. You're going through some kind of a Baptist catechism, most likely, maybe on their level. There are a number of different catechisms that are out there. Uh, one particular Baptist catechism, the one that goes along with our confession, actually asks the question, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Here's the answer the catechism gives for that question. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. So we have the confession writer's answer. We have the catechism's answer to it. And yet we're still trying to come up with how did this happen? We might even add to that question, why? Why would he, who was enthroned next to his heavenly father, condescend, come down to this world? And that is what we're doing with this morning. Now, most of you are used to me giving you a scripture reference, giving you a couple of seconds to turn to that, that passage. You may or may not be able to do that this morning. I'm going to follow a pattern of a catechism. I'm going to ask a question, and then I'm going to give you the answer and the scripture reference that answers the particular question that I'm asking. The ultimate overall question that we're asking is, again, what we've mentioned. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? So I will give the reference. I'll read the verse. Uh, there are a number of verses to get through this morning, and so we will do as the best that we can. We're going to attempt to answer this question from Scripture and then come to a conclusion as to what we should do as a result of what we've learned this morning about the incarnation of Christ. First question, did Christ, the Son of God, become man? Hebrews 2.14 tells us the answer is yes. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Clearly, he became man. Was it required that he should become man? From the text that we read in our call to worship also, Hebrews 2.17, the answer to that question is yes. Wherefore, 
In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17. Next question. Has the Son of Man the fullness of the Godhead? In other words, is the entirety of the Godhead found in Christ? The answer, yes. Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Next question. Has the Son of God the feelings of a man or the feelings of humanity? Hebrews 4.15, the answer, yes. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So we're beginning to see that Christ certainly became a man. We're seeing beginning introduction as to why he became a man, what was required of him in his humanity. Next big question with sub-questions underneath. Did Christ take unto himself a true body? In other words, was this an actual human flesh? The answer is yes. Hebrews 10, 10, 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Was it a body like unto ours? Paul dealing with this in Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The promise of no condemnation is because of God being sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Very important piece of our study this morning is found in what Paul said. Did he take to himself a human soul? A little bit more difficult to find throughout the scripture where he makes reference to this, but Matthew 26, 38, as he's dealing with his disciples in the garden, he says, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Again, two big questions. Christ himself, did he take upon himself a true body? The answer to that question is yes. Did Christ the Son of God become man? The answer to that question is yes. Third big question, was he conceived by ordinary conception? So this is our first answer that is no. Interesting passage, John 8, 23, where Jesus makes mention of this. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. His conception was no ordinary conception. Was he conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost? The answer is yes. Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee 
shall be called the Son of God. That's a direct reference to the question we're asking. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Getting closer and closer. Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Yes. Matthew 1.23 Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Was his conception and birth supernatural? The answer is yes. Matthew 1.20 Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is that of the Holy Ghost. Was he really and truly man? In our call to worship in Hebrews 2.11, it said, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Big question number four. Was Christ the seed of the woman? Yes. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. Along with that question and answer, was the scripture fulfilled? Yes. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Was he the son of Abraham? Hebrews 2.16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Was he the son of David? The answer is yes. Matthew 21, 9. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, with that concept... Was the scripture then fulfilled? Yes. Luke 1, verses 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Big question five. Was Christ... Born in Bethlehem. Yes. Luke 2.11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Was he born among the Jews? Again, we turn to the epistle of Romans and Paul's answer. In Romans 9, verse 1 through 5, he says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh 
Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. He was born among the Jews. Was it an honor to that nation? Yes. Luke 2.32. Let's read in verse 30. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Did he come when the Messiah was expected or prophesied to come? Yes. Luke 2.38 And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Did he come at the hour that was prophesied that he would come? Yes. We're familiar with Luke 2, verses 1 through 6, probably the entirety of Luke 2 during the Christmas season. But this was a great fulfillment of prophecy. That Christ, the Messiah, would be born at the exact moment that a decree would go out about the taxing of individuals. Verse 1 of Luke 2, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world shall be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Did the angels attend him at his birth? Yes. Continuing in Luke 2, drop down to verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We're seeing how the Scriptures are pulling us to show us the answer to these questions. But the question that really begins to now zero in on the the major difference between Christ taking on human flesh is in this next series of questions. Question six of the big questions. Was the Redeemer born in sin as we are? No. Hebrews 4.15, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Was he perfectly pure and holy? Yes. Again, Luke 1.35, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That holy thing. Was he perfectly pure and holy in his entire life? Yes. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 22. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. 
who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Was it required that he should live perfectly pure and holy his whole life? The answer is yes. Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 27. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Remember, Christ was much different than the Old Testament priest who had to offer up for the sins not only of the people, but offer up the sins of themselves. Christ was required to do that and to live perfectly. Fourth question under that big question six. Could Christ have satisfied the requirement for our sin had he broken any of these? The answer is no. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We are certainly thankful that he was without sin. He was not a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It's important to make that distinction. There are some that would say the incarnation of Christ was not dependent or it didn't matter if he was sinless or not. I would submit to you, biblically speaking, all of our hope would be lost if he was not sinless. Question seven. Was he subject to the sin? To the, to the, was he subject to the infirmities of our natures? We've talked about this one already. Hebrews 4.15. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Was he hungry? Talking to physical hunger here. Yes. Matthew 4, 2. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. He hungered just as any other human would hunger. Was he weary? Yes. Matthew 8, 24. Or Matthew, uh, John 4, 6, rather, I'm sorry. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Did he sleep? Yes. Matthew 8.24 Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. You say, preacher, what's the significance of that? We're seeing his humanity. Did he pass through the ages of human life? Yes. Luke 2, 52. 
Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's important to see the distinction between his humanity and his deity. Question eight, was the Redeemer or Christ willing to be incarnate for us? Was he willing or was he forced? Hebrews 10, 9, he was willing. The answer is yes. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Is it well for us that he was willing? Hebrews 10.10, the answer is yes. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It certainly makes it well with our soul that he was willing to be incarnate. Was Christ's incarnation a great condescension in him? Yes. Again, back to the text we opened our service with, Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Bringing many sons unto glory. Making the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 2.6 says, in a certain pl- one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? What an amazing thing to consider, that he who knew no sin, seated at the right hand of the Father, would condescend and stoop so low to redeem sinners like us. Who in and of themselves had no worthiness of their own, had no merit in them, had no value. Yet he came to us. We did not go to him. As we speak biblically, no man, no woman would go to him just on their own volition. But he condescended. He came to us. What is man that he's even mindful of us, that he even pays any attention to us? But not that he pays attention to us temporally, but that he paid attention and is mindful to us spiritually. And that by coming to this earth, he didn't come to just give us a great life now. He came to secure the salvation of his people. And in the incarnation, the birth of that baby in a manger, that, that child who never once ceased to be God, Our folks hear me say that so many times. He didn't cease to be God. Yet he took on human flesh. Is it good news? Is it good news that Christ, the Son of God, became man? Honestly, for those of you that know Christ, you know it's the best news you've ever heard. It's 
the truth you want to know. It's the light that you want to see. It's the light that you want to be able to acknowledge. It's an amazing thing to me as I was studying this week how many times we can turn to one of the Apostle Paul's letters and how sometimes we read the letters and maybe we don't read them as closely as we should, but we see how many times Paul makes reference to the incarnation and how important it was and is to the very securing of his soul. Is it good news? The Apostle Paul would say it was. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 through 17. This is the biggest extension passage. The answer to that question, is it good news to mankind, is yes. But I want you to listen carefully how Paul describes this. And I want you to listen and follow along if you're reading and see if you see where Paul makes a direct reference to the incarnation. Verse 11 Paul says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto him, unto, uh, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You realize the Apostle Paul in that text, he's acknowledging the incarnation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now Paul did not call himself the chief of sinners because he wanted you to feel sorry for him or he wanted you to pity him. The Apostle Paul recognized that in the sight of God and in the sight of God's demands and in what God requires and able for us to be acceptable before a holy, perfect, righteous God, he said, I have absolutely nothing that I can offer. I couldn't even offer God the very best gift that I have. I could not offer him the very best thing that I own. The Apostle Paul realized all those years, he acknowledged what he was. He says, I was once a blasphemer. I was, I was the ringleader of those who said, I despise the way of Christ. So much was he a blasphemer. He persecuted. We know, or I shouldn't assume that, Paul's story is that Paul was a persecutor of those who were of that way, people who were of the way of Christ. Even using the word injurious, I caused injury. I caused death. I was applauding when they were stoning God's prophet Stephen, and I was holding the cloak, and I had no reservations about the rightness and what I was seeing happening. 
But he uses that word, I obtained mercy. He didn't go looking for mercy. He obtained mercy. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And he speaks of the grace of the Lord. He speaks how exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And then when he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, he is saying this is a statement and a faithful saying that can never be undone. It's a statement that can never be disputed. It can never be argued. It's worthy of everyone to accept that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who are the sinners? Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is guilty. And Paul says, I'm the chief. In a sense, all of us could say along with Paul, we're all chief sinners. We're all sinners who stand in need of the Savior. That's why to those who say today the incarnation of Christ has no meaning or no bearing on my life, I would respectfully disagree and argue with you. It certainly does have a bearing on your life. One, you're a sinner. As a sinner, you need a Savior. That Savior is the only the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the world can make it look as if they understand what happened the night Christ was born. They can put every, every aspect and object of the nativity and try to get it right, but not have a single understanding of anything that was taking place. The object is the Savior. The object is the reason why He came. He came into the world and the Bible describes to us how this happened. It was a conception that was of God. Things that are of God, we can't argue against. But what does sinful man want to do? Sinful man wants to argue against the work of God and the things of God. We don't worship a baby in a manger. But we do worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We do worship the incarnate Christ who came, who took on that robe of human flesh, never ceasing to be God, as the Savior of the sinner, which is you and I. Paul ends that portion that he wrote to Timothy with what, how he often did with a doxology. That doxology is a word of praise. He says, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Christ Jesus came into the world to accomplish that which from the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world, was determined would be that Christ, who is very God and very man, is the only mediator between God and man. You do not get to the Father without going to the Son. You cannot even say you know the Father if you don't know the Son. Jesus' own words were, I and my Father are one. The Trinity is another one of those great mysteries. For many years, man has tried to describe and use human pictures and illustrations. Here's how the Trinity works. Every human illustration fails. One God in three persons. 
How did Christ, the Son of Man, be, how did he, had the Son of God become man? He did it through the power and the working of God. And it was all accomplished at exactly the moments and times and in the way in which had been prophesied for years that it would happen. Where does that leave us? That leaves us saying no one should question the truth of the word of God. Every prophecy was fulfilled regarding his birth and his incarnation. It was fulfilled to a T. That leaves man without an excuse to say, I can't possibly know him. The Bible shows us how he would arrive, shows us exactly what he would do, and why he came into the world. The command is repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the command. It's not the invitation to consider and ponder. It's the command, repent and believe. All that the Father has given me, Jesus says, will come unto me, and I will in no wise cast them out. That's a promise. If that wasn't true, then that makes Jesus a liar, which means he's no longer God. Which would suggest that when he came and took on a robe of human flesh, if he lied a single time, then he would cease to be God and there would no longer be a remedy for sin. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that the words that have been spoken have glorified you. Lord, we know that your scriptures, <clears throat> the holy scriptures, they do that. But Father, I pray that through any word that I have spoken, Father, that I've not created any confusion at all, but that as your word has gone forth, Lord, it will do the work in the pow- by the power of the Holy Spirit that it's intended to do. Lord, I pray for any that may be here today that maybe they're struggling with this concept, this principle of the incarnation. And Lord, may the Holy Spirit give them wisdom and understanding and give them clarity and discernment. Father, if there be one or more here today who has yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, oh, how I pray that today would be that glorious day. Father, for those of us who know we are in Christ, that we've been saved, we cry out as the Apostle Paul did, and we realize that it is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which we are chief. Lord, we know that it is of your mercy that we are not consumed. We know it is of your mercy that, uh, Father, that we even have hope today. But Father, I pray that throughout everything that happens today, the Lord, that we do not lose sight of the importance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming man. We pray you'll bless this time that we have this morning. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.